2: Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast.
3: Well, got the of it, and he looks to get the better
2: Michael, and he's done it. This is Mean Lane from ArsenalVision.co.uk. So that is it. It's the end of the 2014 domestic season. Arsenal won the Premier League for the second year in a row. Firstly, I would like to apologise for the delay of podcast this week. Trying to get everyone together at the same time has proved rather difficult. Uh, There's been a lot of celebrations, as you can imagine. And also, real life has got in the way of um, doing the podcast. But uh, we are here. Elliot, James and Paul will be discussing the FA Cup final victory over Aston Villa. And plenty more about the team, squad, manager and so on and so forth. It was a wonderful day last weekend, from a personal point of view, really enjoyed it. I took my son to the Emirates to watch it on the screens, and uh, we had a lovely time. watched the goals in the sunshine, we all celebrated, sang songs, watched Arsenal win the FA Cup again, lovely, beautiful day. I enjoyed it, I'm sure many of you did also, in fact all of you should have enjoyed it. Before I go, I'd just like to thank everybody for downloading and streaming the podcast and everything uh, next season. I'm pretty sure there'll be some more podcasts um, during the summer about transfers and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, be plenty, plenty to discuss over that time, I'm sure. If we do sign a player, I think it'll be a good time to bring out a podcast to talk about the new, new recruit and also from players' leave also. Yeah, we will keep you informed. The Arsenal Vision podcast has a new Twitter handle now. Uh, it's Arsenal V Podcast on Twitter. So if you are not following on that, get following on that, because um, when podcasts are released in the future, they'll be mainly from that account. so get following on that one and um, enjoy the podcast. And there will be, I'll be back at some point in the future. Don't know when yet, but um, yeah, these
1: This Just in, Arsenal, Arsenal FC, they are by far the greatest team the world has ever seen. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match, post-season podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you should, if you haven't already, be blocking me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. We are going to discuss, debate, revel in, enjoy, and probably complain about the season that was at Arsenal 2014-2015. We will start with a discussion of the FA Cup final. Well, there's not really a lot to complain about there, but then we can get into the season as a whole and certainly talk transfers, because unlike the Arscast, where they rose above talking about transfers to focus on the FA Cup victory... We like to sling the mud, get in the dirt, and generally degrade ourselves, and we will talk about transfers. Um, I am joined by two lovely gentlemen who may not want to be associated with the remarks I just made, but that's tough shit for them. The first is James. You can follow him on Twitter at goonerfanatic 49 James, welcome to the pod. Hello. Hello to you, too. James is currently watching tennis, so his uh, points will be totally incoherent today. You can dismiss him at your leisure. Um we're also joined by Paul. He is on oh. Twitter, at PosnanInMyPants. Paul, welcome. woo Paul is a bullion and should not be dismissed for any reason as his focus is entirely on the podcast. I want to take a moment to reiterate that we are a small, uh, organically growing podcast, one that needs your love and support to grow um, You may remember from a prior podcast, I read reviews out loud, including people that want to punch me in the fleshy area that used to be my testicles. Uh, We don't have any reviews to read out for you right now, but if you'd be so kind as to leave a review, perhaps on our uh, iTunes podcast page or other places where reviews are accessible and give us the number of stars that you think is commensurate with our performance, we would be most grateful. We have also now a Twitter handle for this uh, uh, humble podcast, and that Twitter handle is Arsenal V podcast that's arsenal as in the club we all love the as in victory podcast as in the thing going in your ear holes right now you can follow us there and you can also submit questions for future pods we will try to make that a much bigger feature next year presuming we still have listeners and a podcast all right let's kick off discussing the fa cup i don't know if you were aware but arsenal won the fa cup two years running this time we did it in somewhat easier fashion than last time with a gentle 4 nil smacking of the ass of Aston Villa. Um, we'll dive into the FA Cup by first, first of all talking about the two big calls the manager had to make. James, Theo Walcott instead of Giroud, Chesney instead of Ospina. How surprised were you by those two calls?
4: I'm um, pretty surprised. I, I got it pretty wrong. I had predicted before the game that Giroud would come back in and following the... Um, I'm going to stop you
1: there. I need you to just just real quick. Do, do you want to do this now or later, the part where you praise me for saying he'd start Theo? Do, well, do you want to do that part now or just save it till the end?
4: You know what? Funnily enough, Elliot, I was about to give you some credit. Ah,
1: damn it, and I jumped in and did it myself. All right, no, go on. Pretend I didn't do that part and just praise, praise me organically.
4: Yeah. Now you screwed it up, my friend. Oh! All right, keep going. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> too quick to pop the chariot. Listen, I um, always. No, I mean, I, again, it. I there, there was clearly a lot of sense to it. I mean, he caused Aston Villa a serious amount of um, problems with the amount of pace we we had going forward and the amount of space that they allowed us. Um, and as you know, as you had mentioned before, going into the match. Giroud wasn't exactly a striker in, in the richest vein of form. And um, although I disagreed that one game, the, the West Brom game, you know, under a very different amount of pressure, um, different circumstances, wasn't necessarily enough to warrant Theo a starting spot. Clearly it, it, it did, and, and rightfully so, in hindsight, um, in the manager's eyes.
1: How much of that uh, do you think was down not just to the one game by Theo, but the eight games from Giroud? really being more dispositive in terms of why he
4: made the, the switch? Oh, I think it was, a, it was a lot to do with that. Um, you know, I mean, you know, obviously Danny was injured as well, so the only real viable option instead of Zuri would have been Theo, but I think, again, a lot of credit has to be given to Theo, who's still been, you know, over the course of this uh, calendar year, re- recovering from his injury. Um, and to be fair to him, with a couple of games to go, he, you know, he really stepped it up and, and demonstrated to the manager why He was worthy of being on that in on that um, in the starting eleven, and you know I think it would be a little little kick for Giroud, who otherwise has has had a a pretty fantastic season prior, certainly prior to that eight game streak. Um, And but I mean you you can hear it in in his comments, and I think probably the discussion um, or you know the comments made by Thierry Henry um, around that time clearly seemed to have a bit of a mental impact on on Olivier. And I, I don't imagine it was completely to do with that. But unfortunately, that seems to be a little part of um, Olivier's game is that sometimes he gets a little too mentally worked up over things. We see it in, in some of his um, angst and his demonst- demonstration on, on the field when he misses opportunities, et cetera. But it um, seems to have been something he's been, he was working on, at least. Um, and maybe that's another thing that he can um, learn from going into next season. But yeah, no, I mean, you know, it's certainly a bit of both, and obviously the other selection choice was that of Chesney, which, again, that seemed very 50-50 to me, but following Fabianski having started the last game of the season last year um, and Arsene starting this one and given a lot of the discussions that had been made about um, Chesney's behaviour and perhaps the relationship being fractured between him and Arsene, um, I, you know, again, I, I thought Arsene would have, selected off speed, although I personally was com- was happy and comfortable to see Chesney in the starting lineup, and I think he, he too, um, although not having too much to do, proved and awesome right with that selection.
1: Yeah, I mean, it. everything went right on the day, and, you know, the one thing that bothers me is it seems like whenever we do well in a game, there's so much focus on how poorly the opposition did, and I just... It seems to be part of the narrative of football, especially in England, that you very rarely get to just revel in the praise of a good performance because it was always aided by an abysmal performance from the opposition, which may be true, but I really think on that day, it was so much down to what we did right. The pressing was brilliant. The movement was sensational. We could have had many more goals than we scored, and Villa just could not cope with the high pressure and the, the fast ball movement and, and the off-the-ball movement from our players. And I, I just hate to see it all written off to basically being, oh, Tim Sherwood got it all wrong and Villa were terrible. I, I don't think it's entirely down to that. Um,
3: Elliot, Paul, can I jump in on that? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think it's a great point. There's a couple of quick points I'd like to add to that. If you look at the first six or seven minutes, Villa were very much there to play. They were down our end for two three opportunities where they were putting in crosses they were following their game plan they were high energy they came to play so that was the first piece of it um, the second piece is we normally what happens is there's a bit of an ebb and flow you start well and you know you get perhaps the storyline could have gone we got to halftime and we didn't get that first goal they come out at halftime Uh, realizing they're still in this thing. You know, we've seen those kind of matches before and those kinds of cup finals. This could have gone many, many different ways. Um, But what was particularly impressive about us was that, you know, allowing for the goal and not getting the goal, we played 94 minutes where we never let up. Uh, And that was... You know, we've seen many other games where we've been the better team, but we've had 20 minutes where we kind of relax and let it go. There was not a stage at any of the crucial points in this game where we weren't at it 100%. You could see it in the players. They they had so turned up. This was so different to last year. They were 100% into it. They were on the front foot. Now, to me, Villa most definitely came to play on the front foot too. But it's kind of – it's like one of these arms races. You know, if it's as simple as, oh, just send your team out to play on the front foot, guess what? The other team's doing that too, so you have to be doubly on the front foot. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to be doubly – you know, it's this arms race. Every club is trying to send out their team. And it's not as simple as just go out there, guys, and run around a bit because you've got to have positional sense. You've got to have – you need – purs automatisms and that's where it comes into being on the front foot it's not just a mental thing of of giving it 100% or 110% you got to have the play the understanding the being in form all of those pieces that allow you to be on the front foot And to be up and at him. Well,
1: and and the interesting thing is, I think the two big calls he had to make, Chesney and Theo, on another day he could have made those calls, and they could have just sort of not not been very influential. Mm. But I thought both of them made big, big differences in the game. Early on, that first punch Chesney made where he just took it right away from Benteke, it, you know, we have been vulnerable to back post crosses. He dominated the box. He came for everything and got to just about everything. And Theo obviously scoring the opening goal and actually having a couple of very presentable chances prior to that. Um, you know, there's another element to playing Theo, too, is when you play Giroud, the only place he really makes sense is through the middle as a pivot. When Theo scored his goal, he had swapped with Alexis and was on the left, and Alexis was through the center. And that's not something you can really do as much when you have Giroud, who's much more static. So, you know, I think we saw that. I know you're a big Theo fan. I happen to be a pretty big Theo fan myself, although I'd I'd sort of begun to believe that his time at Arsenal had just expired with, with more of a whimper than a bang, so to speak. Now, if he does leave, it's certainly going out with a bang and not with a whimper. But, Paul, as someone who loves Theo... How much vindication was this for him as a player, do you think? How much do you think this influences potentially a future at Arsenal? And in terms of how we play with him on the pitch instead of Giroud, how do you think that impacts other players around him like Alexis, Ozil, Ramsey, Cazorla?
3: I love that question. So what I thought was really interesting... It was actually three ha- questions,
1: but that's sort of how yeah. I <laughs> roll anyway.
3: So, yeah, with yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, the... The bit of that I'm actually interesting, interested in answering is one question. Fair, please so, do. <laughs> so fuck I me, really,
1: answer your question.
3: Yeah. Oh, I, I fully <laughs> intend to. So Theo had 17 touches, I think. Yeah, that's and, right. Mm-hmm. And in the previous West Brom game, I think it was David Wall put out that thing that said he had like 33 touches. But they were all where you'd want them to be as a striker. Now they were parking the bus, so they were all in the, the penalty area. So the the blog I'm halfway through the writing the writing of if I ever get my finger out is there's no metric for what T O gives you.
1: You need and an the off best, the ball running metric, and I don't think yeah. there is one.
3: Yeah. And the best metric uh, for his performance on the day was the four or five offsides. Mm -hmm. Because what he did and what Chesney did, they both – I agree with your summary on that. They both did the same thing. They set the tone. Um, Chesney's two, three punches and catches early on in that game told uh, Villas, consciously and subconsciously, if it's anywhere in range, I'm not only going to come for it, I'm going to get it. The couple he kind of came for and didn't quite clear up were because they were – putting those crosses in shallower and shallower, and he was having to come further and further. So he'd kind of half won those battles. That, that was actually a defeat on their part, that they were crossing them so far out that uh, they were just beyond his range. So it wasn't all bad news, and he punctured their game plan. Theo, on the other hand, was a... Th- you know, the the stat you'd want to measure Theo on was DEFCON. Is he at DEFCON 5, 4, 3, or 2? Because... Every one of those offside runs were within inches of completely turning their days, day upside down. Now interestingly, the goal, as you said, came from somewhere else. A different kind of play it was you know he wasn't running in behind. but you know that kind of thing of rattling their defense puts them kind of off their game, creates space. and here's where I think theo's Performance really made a difference. There's a, been a point you've asked a couple of times about Alexis, and how the competition kind of got used to his one trick, the knocking it onto his right foot, and taking a potted goal. Now, interestingly, that's how he scored this goal. Admittedly, from maybe another 10 yards out, and an absolute howitzer of a of a shot. But mm-hmm. I'm going to give most of the credit to Theo, and let me tell you why. We've been discussing Alexis. Been out of form for ten games, and yet this game comes out of nowhere. He still really kind of has one of his dribbly. Gets tackled, uh, you know, puts a pass out there that's not too successful. Right. Yeah.
1: His statistics were terrible. I mean, aside from his assist terrible. and his goal, he gave the ball away a ton, completed virtually no passes, and was terrible on the dribble.
3: <laughs> yeah. So here's my Theo thesis: the difference in this one. Was here was this is what the guy can do when he doesn't have two guys standing in front of him against a set defense. And if you think about how that play comes about, Per, who we've talked about distributing quickly from the back, kind of Arteta style, up to Ozil, who slips a ball between the lines to Theo. And if you take a snapshot of when Theo gets that ball and turns around, he has six players ringed around him three Mm -hmm. who are trying to tackle him, one who's running back from Ozil towards him. Cleverly is looking at him. The center back is waiting for him to move inside. Ram Ramsey's pulled towards Theo. So Ramsey's marker, I think, is Hutton. Is pulled to, everybody is in that little corner of the field and Alexis is breaking to the left. And when that ball pops out from Theo, having taken basically the the back six or seven, anybody who isn't marking Theo is standing looking at Theo. So when that thing pops out. Alexis runs over to the left. For the first time in eight games, he's got nobody in front of him. They all come charging across like Keystone cops. He then does his trick of moving to the right, creates space. Monreal goes charging up the left side like a freight train, brings one of their defenders. Now it's just him versus Cleverly and Cleverly overshoots. Now hell of a shot after that. Absolute howitzer. But it Theo basically took those back eight players that are normally between Alexis and the and the, the goal and picked it up like a a perfectly set Rubik's cube and shuffled it, mm-hmm. and that's so okay. It's an overstatement, but that's why Theo gets ninety nine point nine percent of the credit for Alexis's goal.
1: Um. That was a comprehensive answer. Jamesian, (laughs) you might say, in its (laughs) exhaustiveness. Um, But but I enjoyed it tremendously. And I know you've been waiting to have a reason to comprehensively praise and discuss Theo, so I'm glad he gave it to you with his, his performance on the day. And I think You know, this has always been my complaint with Giroud. It's not so much the limitations of him as a player individually. It's the style of his play, the things he's good at and the things he's not good at, and how they impact the way the rest of the team plays. And I think that Theo... You know, look, if we had Sam Allardyce as a manager who wanted to loft long balls into the box and play for set pieces and, you know, really put center backs under physical pressure, Giroud would be a a, a great fit for that. But I think... We have a lot of players that want the ball played defeat, dribbly players, Cazorla, Ramsey, Alexis, Ozil, you know, who can thread through balls, but but don't necessarily play as well off of Giroud. And he fills up that space at the top of the box and makes everything very congested. Theo runs out of that space and leaves areas for our dribbly players to move into and for our pinpoint passers to pick out runs. And so it's, it's not so much a criticism of Giroud's uh, caliber of skill. It's the type of skills. I, I look at it this way. As a manager, I would always want to start the striker or players that strike the most fear into the opposition defense. And based on our style of play, I think if you ask most managers whether or, or defenders whether they'd rather face Giroud or Theo they'd probably say they'd rather face Giroud because they at least can keep him in front of them and know how to cope with the, the challenge he creates. It's not a criticism of his ability. It's just a style of play issue. I think even Pulis, after the West Brom game or something, had said, I was hoping Theo wouldn't play. Um, so, uh, and,
3: and that's really the DEFCON stat I'm talking about.
1: Right. Well, for people who don't know, DEFCON is how America measures uh, how close to being on the brink of war it is, um, you can ins- Typically,
3: in the context of nuclear war with Russia during the Cold War, kind of thing, Defcon Five, Four, Defcon yeah. One is really, really bad.
1: We have all the cool war acronyms that will surprise no one here. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, so that that's sort of a comprehensive summary of what Theo gave. Um, James, why don't you take a swing at a little bit more of just how the midfield played? The thing that I thought was so interesting about this game is it's very, very rare for us this season that everyone in the midfield had a great game all at once. You could argue that Kazorla, Coughlin and Ozil had theoretically their best game of the season all in the same game. Um, what was your, uh, evaluation of how the midfield performed and was this the best you've seen that three-man midfield work since they've been put together this season?
4: Um, I think it was, yes. Uh, as you said, Cochrane, Ozil, Cazorla, all three of them were absolutely fantastic and Ramsey too.
1: Of course, I mean, he kind of comes in there and becomes part of a four. Yeah.
4: yeah, I mean, he he comes in central quite a lot. I mean, he does stick to that position but you do tend to see a little movement. I mean, Ozil tends to pull out a little bit. His position is never particularly stable and um, every now and then uh, Cazorla makes runs out, out wide, not so much to the right. You sometimes, we saw him pop up on the left inside the box and cutting balls across and, um, they seem to, you know, it's, it's been the first time in a long while it seems that we've gone through a long run of games and not incurred a significant number of injuries, um, certainly to key players. And so that that four, and including Alexis, have been playing together from the start for quite a number of games now. And you can really see how, how much the connections have really built, especially if you think that Cochrane has only really been a first-team player since... Um, around the midway point of the season. Um, I mean, that midfield was just an absolute delight to watch. I mean, the the way that Ozil shaped his body and created and and, and beat a man, you know, Cazale's classical classic twinkle toes and, and bringing the ball in from, um, you know, breaking that half of the field and bringing it into the final third. His distribution was excellent. And, you know, a real special shout-out to Francis, who we've talked about on this pod um, and I think, you know, we've had a slight disagreement with the kind of technical qualities of, of Cockland and Paul has as mentioned quite aptly, um, you know, the important point that Cochrane is still a player very much learning his trade in this position. He really hasn't played it for a long period of time, certainly not on a consistent basis. So there's still quite a lot of upside to him. Um, and... I have been somewhat of the opinion that he is a player that that does have a a certain level of technical prowess, and I think he really demonstrated that on the big stage. It's such an important game. I mean, his defensive, there's no denying his defensive contributions and how much he brings to the team in that regard, especially given that it's been a position that we've been wanting for such a long period of time, and we finally found a player that kind of seems to fit that exact bill of being extremely responsible, continuing to hold that position, having that athletic um, potential is is understanding of the game, his positioning, his ability to constantly intercept and, and break up attacks. And um, I think and- you could argue that that the way Cocklin played in possession against Villa was the
1: entire reason we were able to undermine their approach. Because I, I think you know we've seen before if you press Cazorla little, a little and you leave Cocklin alone, you can basically choke off our our build up through the midfield. And Cochland received the ball in tight spaces, completed dribbles, which he never does, or got fouled, you know, so didn't lose possession. And he distributed brilliantly. And the first goal came from a beautifully pinged pass where Cochland collected the ball, got out of trouble, pinged it wide to Theo, overlapped to Nacho, crossed to Alexis, head back to Theo. But it all started with Cochland being the outlet in midfield. So don't you think to some extent, you know, that, his in-possession performance in the FA Cup was a big reason why Villa weren't able to keep us from building up through midfield.
3: And can I just add, sorry to cut you off, James, but just a quick stat, that was actually his third cross-field diagonal, the one to Theo. Yeah, I mean, was, it, it was, it two was easily it. his
1: best performance in possession, right, James? I mean, we, we, we've seen him do little things, but we've never seen him be that confident on the ball and that, that ambitious and successfully ambitious
4: with his passing. I I honestly couldn't agree more. I mean, I specifically mentioned it within I think it was within the first fifteen twenty minutes that I was amazed at at how well he was able to keep the ball under tight um, in tight situations and wriggle away from um, the midfield the Villas midfield players that were pressing him high up the field and it was it was truly amazing to watch because I think it's you know, it demonstrates how much he has grown in confidence and and as a player and as you rightfully said I think there have been plenty of teams that have really targeted us in that regard try to push us. High up the field, and it's kind of, it's it's somewhat removed the, the qua- or, or destabilized the qualities that the, a Casola possesses, and has kind of destabilized the way in which we transition our um our football. And I think, especially given you know the way in which Villa came at us early in uh, in the early parts of the game, I mean that was a big big factor in in really demoralizing them and really allowing us to play the free flowing football that we also played throughout the f- uh, the majority of the match. And you know certainly from you know, twenty minutes onwards. I mean, we were completely dominant, um, and Coquelin was a huge, huge pivotal um, aspect of that. And so it was, it was absolutely fantastic to see. I think, you know, his, his distribution was excellent, and his his entire his all round game was um, was absolutely top notch on the day.
1: Yeah. Um, so, Paul, any any other thoughts on Coquelin's performance?
3: Yeah, just just a quick thought that I mean, you could see this. You could see how. Um, I think the most impressive thing beyond his game was that he looked like he felt he belonged there. You know, this was the FA Cup final. He had arguably his best game in the shirt. And he looked strong. He looked like it. I'd I like to think this is going to be a signature game for him where he finally believes that you know, he's worth it, Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) that
3: it's not not all a dream, that he's not going to wake up, he's at Charlton. And this allows him to really kind of move forward uh, in the same way you'd like to think this game is going to be above and beyond for somebody like Bellerin, who was already charging forward. But imagine what it does to a guy like that, a 19-year-old's confidence for thinking, you know, where can this take you? I think it could be a huge game for Chesney. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, for obvious reasons. I'd love it to be a huge game for Theo as a signature game, kind of at the centre-forward mark, uh, and hopefully uh, with us to reap the benefits of it at Arsenal. And, you know, going back to the Giroud conversation, there's a part of me that thinks he may not have been that gutted. He's he's gutted he didn't start. He's gutted he wasn't at the FA Cup uh, as a starter at the FA Cup final. Mm -hmm. but I bet there's a part of him that was relieved that when his form was a little off, when the heat was on, that he had somebody to share it with who was in form, and he still came on, he got a few minutes, scored a goal, will feel pretty good about that. Um, I think his seasons would go a lot easier with a a nice, clear differentiation between him and Theo. There are certain games that suit Giroud, certain games that suit Theo, and let them fight in the middle for those those you could play either way, or um, and and find out where that dividing line is between those those two strikers. But it's not the worst thing in the world for Giroud not to always have the spotlight, the burden to carry the team when his form is clearly off. And I think there's a part of him that will be relieved that Theo was in form, Theo got the business done. And it's not all about how Giroud let us down in the final when his, his forms a little off. So I, I'm sure he wanted to start, but I'm sure there's mixed emotions in there somewhere.
1: Yeah. I'm not going to go into the Giroud thing because honestly, I think people are probably tired of hearing my opinion on it. You know, I I think he's a good footballer. I think he's a good asset for the team, but I'd like to see a different dynamic at center forward. Not, not even just a better yeah. player, different dynamic. But I said I'm not going to go into it, and I still went into it. <clears throat> um, I think you, you touched on a very important point about Coughlin, too. We see this a lot. Players who kind of come out of nowhere are a feel-good story, work really hard to get into a team, but then eventually the fact that they're just not talented enough catches up with them. And I think the crucial piece for Cocklin is he's been carried a lot this season just on adrenaline and excitement and hunger for his position and willingness to run and run and be that defensive, um, that de- defensive uh, anchor in our midfield. But now that's not going to be enough going forward. He has to show that he has the skill and the talent to be a regular, not just the heart and the energy. And I think the FA Cup was really encouraging because on a big stage he showed – more than the heart and the desire and the, the effort, he showed the talent and the skill. And if that's really yeah. in there, that's what's going to carry him to be the solution for that position for many, many years at Arsenal. Um, let's move on a little bit because I do want to get to some season, some reason, some uh, summer transfer discussion so that we still have some listenership. Um, uh, James, real quick, two things. Your favorite goal. And maybe you can just elaborate for us on what your experience was for the game in this week, because I know it, it was uh, another joyous occasion for you. So really quick, your favorite goal, and then maybe just share with us a little bit of how you celebrated the FA Cup.
4: Um, well, there's no doubt about the favorite goal. I mean, the Alexis um, second was just an mm-hmm. absolute rocket and arguably one of, I would imagine, one of the best, FA Cup final goal, certainly the best Arsenal FA Cup final goal that I can remember. Um, I mean, to strike a ball in the way that he did um, from that distance, he created the space for himself. And then, I mean, the sweetness of that strike, it's truly something to behold. Um, And the way it swerved and came off the underside of the bar, I mean, it just looked magnificent. And I think that was even a little coy smile from... Shea Given the sort of suggested that there was just absolutely nothing he could do about Yeah, quick quick question for you. If you
1: were a villa fan, would that annoy you, that little smile, or is it just basically like, I can't believe that he just did that to me and and it is what it is.
4: Yeah, I think it was the second thing. I don't think there's too much to read into it. Um I just think it was almost the shock of the audacity to even try and pull it off and then to execute it in the way that he did. Um was all I mean, was all that, that sort of emotion evoked. Okay. But um, the day itself, I went with um, a group of friends to the Tollington um, early in the day. We arrived there just just after one. Just a to be clear,
1: these are human beings that are not me and Paul, so other people that, <laughs> that, that want to spend time with you.
4: <laughs> that pretend to want to spend time. Okay, amazing. All right, so you went to uh, the Tollington. Tollington. I mean, the atmosphere there was absolutely fantastic. It did really, you have a pie? I did not have a pie. Oh, I did no. have a pint, though. Good. Pint. Just the have, one? Because you believe in moderation? Yes, of course. You have know, okay. got to be sensible, especially on an FA Cup final. There. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Wouldn't want to do anything to the board, too. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, the atmosphere from you know, I mean, from even two o'clock onwards was just, just electric. And I mean, I think to be honest, the, the true emotion was when we scored that first goal. I mean, the whole place was the whole place was shaking. It was, um, it was just so fantastic to be a part of, and. Obviously, the celebrations went on for hours after the game. I mean, we found ourselves sort of running through the streets. There was a, a good section of us sort of jumping and running and singing around the roundabout by just outside the armory. Um, there was a large collection of fans that had come from the, the Emirates to so watch the screening there. Um, I mean, and everyone was just, you know, I mean, it, honestly, just like even, I mean, looking back at it now is just one of the greatest feelings, you know. I mean, one of the, I don't even go so far to say one of the best days of my life because I mean that's what that's what you live for as an Arsenal fan and to share it with so many Arsenal fans in the area was just uh, um, it was just <laughs> absolutely amazing and I, I'm now, we're all going to be able to go throughout this entire summer with the knowledge that we, we won the fucking cup and uh, it's you know it's, it's just so great to be a part of it and um, especially in the fashion that we did I mean for, to really put Aston Miller to the sword in, in that fashion from um, from the first minute to the last Uh was you know, it was it was a true testament to Arsenal and um, you know the the way in which we we were clearly able to play against some of the the smaller sides and um, especially when Villa sort of decided to come at us in, in the in the way that they did, which I thought I, I know it's not their not their game not the way that they play but I mean there was a a case in point example at both Sunderland um, and Swansea at home so recently of exactly how you need to go about us. Um, and on a day like that, it's, I was somewhat shocked that they didn 't but
1: well, that was the I, I think you might remember that was the whole underpinning for my argument that we would win three or four one, which I think I mentioned on this podcast is just that that 's how tactics Tim likes to play, and he brags about it, and he prides himself on it, and pride goes before the fall, and sure enough they fell um yeah, it was really a spectacular occasion, and i I think Paul, for you, how special is this win becoming the club that's won the most FA Cups, the manager who's you know, the modern manager, who's won the most FA Cups, um, defending the title, winning it with this team. You know, we talked last season about it being a building block for greater things. But after the World Cup, that just didn't really happen with no World Cup this summer, with no major tournament other than for Alexis, with no CL qualifier. How special is this win for history and for momentum for you?
3: Um, I think it's pretty huge. I mean, any team, as has been shown, can win an FA Cup. I'm not sure. It creates a degree of belief, lots of belief. But winning it two years in a row, um, I, I think this group of players will take so much strength out of it. And like you say, we were kind of robbed of the momentum last summer. I mean, we won the Shield. That was nice. Good momentum builder. And then... We were just kind of rubbish. It sounded
1: like you were almost trying to convince yourself that's true, by the way.
3: <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, well, I, the, what's the, what I think is really good about the Charity Shield is, is for a week or two, we're one of the two teams that are paraded around as having won, won something. Yeah. And you're generally, especially when you win the FA Cup, it means you're faced, you have earned the right to face the league leaders in a one-off.
1: It's a piece, know, with, It's a showpiece game, yeah.
3: Yeah, it's us and City. It's us and Chelsea. Um, you know, well, and it, it comes feel- at a
1: time when you're so starving for football that it naturally gets more attention than it might otherwise.
3: Yeah, so I don't think you can overstate it, but I think it definitely—it's got to be pretty good for the players to know that the thing they're going after, they're about to play that team next, and it's the start of the league. And like you say, no World Cup, thank you, no, no qualifier for the Champions League. That'll be a big difference. Uh players all fit, please God. Alexis comes back in one piece and gets a little rest. So, you know, things change really quickly in football. That's the only problem. But I do think there's a there's a, a level that has been built into this team of confidence, a basic level of basic level of belief that they're really, really close now. Not that they could be really close or that they should be really close, but that they are really close. Um, I mean, the other nice thing is that the strength of our season was the second half, um, that we ran as good as anybody else for that period. Um, You know, if we keep stability, we're going to talk about who might or mightn't come or go in a little bit. But if we can keep the core of this, if we could keep all of our players and keep them fit, that's one hell of a signing for the summer. If we add one quality player on that, we'll talk about this more. But I'd be pretty close to be happy. Mm-hmm. Um, if if what we really got out of this summer was keep that momentum, keep everybody fit, keep them healthy during the season, keep them all together.
1: Well, and I think we can all agree that you being happy is is the priority here, so we're going to make sure that happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I, I think that ultimately there is – when, when you want to brag about your club, when you want to be proud of your club, there are a lot of reasons you can be, just the way you play football or – you know the 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 trophies you win and certainly being able to say you've won more FA Cups than anyone else is is mm-hmm. a is a bragging right and it's great to have it and no matter what you think of the manager over the past few years no one would deny that he's a club legend no one would deny that he has done such important things for the club and to be able to have something on his CV that puts him ahead of all other modern managers I think is the least of what he deserves to cement his place in history um I think his legacy is much greater and will be much greater when he retires than some of the most recent discussions about him and i I think even the most um dogmatic um, critics of of arson over the past few years. Are people who still openly and, and happily acknowledge that he is a club legend and someone who is a legend of the game in England um, and so it's good yeah, I think it's great to see him have that that on his resume. I'd love to see him have a, a champions league because I think that's the one thing that's missing for the club and for the manager, but that's you know there's always ne- always next season. Um, so let's do this let's sort of summarize the season. Um, I think this is a really, really tough one. Because it was such a bad season for half of it, or maybe 60% of it, and such a good season for the most part for 40% of it. And there is always going to be a bit of a recency bias when evaluating. So I'd like to try to not have that recency bias if we can avoid it. If you guys are open to it, let's use the good old-fashioned American letter grade system um, just because it's convenient. James, what grade do you give? The season and why
4: um, I, I really want to give it an A minus, just because I think the feat of winning an FA Cup two times in a row is, is that much more is, is that impressive, and given the slight improvement in the league to come third, although there were clear um, issues with the way in which we did it, and you know, also how far we came behind Chelsea but i'd have to give it a b plus following the manner of the defeats in monaco um, in the champions league um you know if if, if if we were able to avoid that horror even if you include the i don't know if it was the first 60% but maybe first 40 50% of the season where we started really poorly um, and really slowly when you look at uh, the season as a whole um then you know, I, I think it would. You know, it's it's borderline A minus because on paper, you know, to win a trophy, we 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 we've we've, we've been through how, how hard it is in itself, and um, we've talked so much as a fan base of how desperate we are to get silverware again, um, and I think we can be a little harsh on ourselves as well. I mean, we can always be a little hypercritical because we're so in touch and um, so close to sort of the the disasters that occur, and they tend to hit a little harder. Um, you know, I mean, do you give... Can you really not give Chelsea an A, even though, um, you know, they went out in the Champions League in the way they they did. I mean, that defeat to Bradford as well. But, you know, ultimately, they, they ended up coming out with a Premier League trophy. Um, so it, it's a, it's a little tough to give a, a set um, grade because it, it's, it's always a little dependent on the way in which you interpret it and evaluate it. But, I mean, a phenomenal way to finish it, I think, going into the season, if someone had said... Um, finish third, improvement, um, progress in the squad, no Champions League qualifier, and to w- retain the FA Cup, um, albeit with you know getting knocked out in the Champions League and in the manner we did, I, w- I would certainly have taken it. Um, and I think there's no doubt, especially uh, when you look at the performance of the second half of the season. I think it's uh, it is a b- an important difference, and certainly when looking ahead. Um, okay, when you when you look at the season as a whole, when you compare it from. Say the season prior to um, to this one, yes, they're kind of like in some ways very similar, just just flipped around. But I just, I think the importance of finishing in the way that we did and the, the the kind of confidence that gives us in both the league and 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 knockout competitions for next year is is pivotal. I think we talked about um, that year going into was it uh, twenty thirteen when we started as well as we did. We'd also finished the season prior extremely well there's a lot of you know there's a lot of talk about the kind of records we were looking to break over that calendar year and um, it was a demonstration of how that form from the year prior um, can really seep into next season and I think just the way in which the squad has developed there's just so there's, there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic um, certainly going into next season um, I know I kind of moved away from you know actually evaluating that season in itself and moving a little towards what that means for next year but um, that's why I, I know it, it can be thought of as a little bit of recency bias. But I think um, that's why it plays such an important part when you evaluate the season because of how much it means going, um, going into the next.
1: Yeah, of course. That's I mean, a- I, I don't think you can evaluate a season without viewing it where you came from and where you're going, right? Because the season is two things. It's the experience of the season itself. And then it's the experience of the season as to how it fits into the story that the club is telling right now, you know, to the the direction the club is moving, where it came from in 2013-14, where it'll be in 2015-16, and how the 2014-15 season fits into that picture. So I don't think there's anything wrong with evaluating it based on that. I think it was a step forward from 2013-14 and is leading us in a right direction for 2015-16. I mean, having said that personally... I think you have to give it—you can't put it into the A plus, A, A minus range because I think, first of all, those are probably reserved for a, a CL or Premier League title. But I also think that you cannot have a season where you have your worst start in 25 years and a season where you bow out in the Champions League to opposition you should be beating and stay an A— Unless, you know, I mean, maybe if you win the Premier League, yes, but with the FA Cup is a wonderful achievement. But based on those failures, you know, I hate to call them failures, but disappointments, I think it keeps the season firmly in the BB plus range because I don't think you can just write off the first half of the season as not mattering or write off the failure in the Champions League because it is worrying. The reality is European competition is something Arsenal should be targeting as at least something where we can get, further than the round of 16. Um, and, and it really set up well for us. And we look at Juventus in the final, and that's the team we would have been playing in the quarters. And I'm not saying we would have beaten them or beaten Madrid, you know, or or certainly not Barcelona. But you see that path, and we we, you know, we denied ourselves a chance to be on that path. Having said that, the squad is better than it's ever been since the Invincibles. The... The back-to-back cups are phenomenal, phenomenal achievement for the club. And you'd be incredibly precious not to be feeling very, very happy and optimistic right now. And I totally agree with you that the absence of a qualifier, especially with the season starting early this year, is huge. um, And and that should give us the opportunity to be a little fresher, a little peppier, a little more focused on the league to start the season. Um, Paul, I want your grade for the season also... And then, if you can summarize that pretty quickly, I'm gonna follow up with a question that I'm borrowing from the Arscast. So, give me, give me sort of quickly your your summary of the season and, and how you would grade it.
3: I think uh, B plus. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you looked at the cold hard facts, for all the reasons you guys talked about, it feels like a B plus. I mean, a uh, good second half to the league. Uh, another FA Cup, which I think, for the reasons we talked about, I think it's huge for the belief and for the momentum. <clears throat> Disappointing Champions League, both the group stage, to be honest, uh, and of course the round against Monaco was a real flub, and are such a poor start to the season. So, but um, but I feel like it was an A minus in terms of like and that's probably that recency bias you're talking about Mm -hmm. i really enjoyed the season i feel good about things so in terms of where it's left us you know coughed up on dry land feeling pretty good so feels like an a minus but when you look at the cold hard facts it's closer to a a a very positive b b plus
1: okay yeah i think we're all sort of on the same page Mm -hmm. with that um so my good friend, Bill Walt is someone I speak to on the phone every day. He was best man at my wedding and he's a big Arsenal fan in Boston. And we, we talk about all the different podcasts we listen to and uh, you know, all the different questions that come up and he listens to a podcast. That you may not have heard of it's called the Arscast. cast. Um, it's hosted by an up and coming blogger. And, uh, there's another up and coming blogger named Gunner blog who does a, an ArsCast cast extra. They actually do two a week. If you can imagine having that much to say about Arsenal James. Um, but, uh, they had a question the other week, and, and he and I debated it at length on the phone, which is a non-internet form of communication, if you can even believe that. Um, I'll ask each of you this briefly. I don't want to get into it too much, but I'm just very interested here. I think I know where both of you are going to come down on this. But he he wants to know, if Mourinho and Arsene Wenger swapped, swapped squads, what do you think the outcome would have been this season? Because... My friend Bill was sort of of the opinion that we may have the best squad in the Premier League. Not maybe the best first 11, but it is a very, very good squad. And before we go patting ourselves on the back too much, there's a the question of did this great squad underachieve? And so the manager has, has shown a lot of, I think, growth this season. Paul, all things considered, if you swapped squads, do you think Mourinho would have taken this Arsenal to a title? Do you think Arsene could have taken that Chelsea to a title?
3: Well, I think the third piece of it is, do you swap philosophies? Because Well, of
1: course you do, right? Because Arsene Wenger is not going not to manage by Mourinho's philosophy.
3: And, the, the you know, Mourinho had Chelsea, if I focus on that. Chelsea had the more balanced squad. Mm-hmm. Um, they were the squad more set up to win a league, and how you manage them. Uh, I still think the the philosophy and approach is a question that's on the table because I think if Arson were given that job of managing that squad, he would change. He wouldn't become Mourinho, but he would change how he played okay. because, and we have seen that. We've seen him adapt to players. I think per has had quite an impact working with Arson and working with Bol, uh, Steve Bold about how we approach games. Um, and we're not party to all of that. But if you ever listen to Ar- Arson talk, uh, he doesn't, because he doesn't have a rigid philosophy apart from we ought to attack a lot and be uh, attacking for most of the time, He's looking at the players he has. He adapts to it. You know, you talk about uh, Alexis being the dribbler rather than the quick-play passer that we look at. Well, Arsene adapts to that. Uh, Walcott has never really been a classic uh, uh, Wenger pick in terms of Wenger ball, but he brings some real attributes that Wenger has incorporated into the way he plays historically. I mean, there was a time when, when Theo was fit. He always played. So... Um, he does adapt to the players, so I, I'm. I, to be honest, I'm struggling with the question in terms of would Fenger win the league with the Chelsea squad? And the answer is depends on what his objective was that year. The thing about Mourinho is his objective is always to win at any cost, and Arsene's is always his objective is to leave the club stronger than it was the year before. And those are two different goals. So I still. You know, there's a fourth aspect of it. If you said, if, if Arson put his mind to just winning the league, anyway, how with the Chelsea squad uh, and Mourinho with the Arsenal squad, Wenger would win the league with the Chelsea squad.
1: Okay. And, and you don't think that Mourinho, in a vacuum, could have taken this Arsenal squad to the title?
3: Um... Mm, I still don't think it has the balance he needs. I think it would have been like the previous year where he said this squad isn't good enough or isn't balanced enough or isn't whatever to win the league this year. We'll have a go at it next year, and he'd wimp out. That's what I think he yeah. did. Yeah, I
1: mean, look, it, it's it's tough because he's such a see you next Tuesday that it's, it's difficult to take that out of the equation and really evaluate him as manager because he did blow it last season. I mean, people forget he blew yeah. it. He blew it last season. Yeah. Um,
3: you know, he... and, and it was it was very close. I know there were a couple of key changes, but it was very close to the same squad. He only brought in two players. Well, but I think and... those
1: two players are arguably two of the most important players in the Premier League over the course of the season. So, I mean, you know, I think had he won it with the squad he had last season, it would have been a pretty impressive feat. Basically, was, this, not this having a striker a... or or a well, creative player.
3: Well, I think you make a great point there. This was a manager who decided he couldn't win it with Juan Mata, yeah. who was a great player. So, it, you know, it's just he needs it his way. That's why I think that he would really struggle to win it with Arsenal. I mean, it's full of bloody Juan Mata's. Yeah, that's a good point. He'd seven be selling of seven of them to United <laughs> yeah. and saying, we can't go to the title this year.
1: Um, okay, look, the, the reality is whether he was managing – Arsenal or Chelsea or United or Real Madrid or whatever it is, he's still an eye gouging horrifying <laughs> terrible cunt. Um James, let's do this. Let's let's take just a couple quick um listener questions cuz I do want to incorporate this more. This one comes from Dougie Cazorla, Santi's brother. Um he's on Twitter at Dfresh10. Um He asks, with Theo staking a claim as a center-forward option, will Welbeck see the majority of his playing time on the wing next year? Um, Obviously, that depends on Theo staying and if you believe he's staked a claim as center-forward. But what do you make of Welbeck's year, and what do you make of his future for next year?
4: Um, Well, the initial answer to that is, although I think the Ask mentioned this, this season has been exemplary in demonstrating... How there, is absolute, there are no absolutes at all in, um, in football, and it's very difficult to sometimes predict this. I mean, from um, a positional sense, I mean you would never have expected a cockleand to rise in the way that he did. We'd never have predicted Kazola to move back into the role that he ended up taking on um, and extremely well at that. And you know, of course, the uh, you know say the inclusion of Theo as a centre forward for the final, we would uh, I mean that would have been unimaginable unimaginable a couple of weeks ago. Um, That being said, following this season, I do see the majority of his game time coming from out wide. I think as of right now, especially given the kind of finishing that he uh, somewhat lacks, I think a lot of what he brings to the team is that energy and that industry out wide and um, his ability to stay very true to um, his task, um, working extremely hard both defensively and offensively. Um, His hold-up players' ability to retain possession in the final third um, and, you know, that that athletic ability and and pace to constantly cause all types of defenders' issues and and, and come inside and provide that aerial threat. Um, That being said, I mean, I do see him more of a squad player, a player that comes in um, injuries allowing or um, schedule permitting, Given players that might need a little rest, or, you know, an extremely strong player to come off the bench, and a player that you need throughout the course of the season, especially just given his tenacity and the way in which he contributes to the team, um, you know, he's still a player that's that's somewhat developing. But I don't, you know, he's not he's not 19, he's not 20. You would you'd like to think a player of his age now a player that clearly possesses a lot a, a lot of technical ability um, would have. Taken his finishing to that level, but then we then again we've seen with certain players, you know, like you, you can look towards Giroux, Probably not the best example for you, Elliot. But um, well, I, just,
1: I do think that his sale this summer is going to really impact Welbeck's playing time next season. <laughs>
4: um <Boo. laughs> we you know we've seen with a player like him, he's he's, he's continued to grow and um, improve, even you know at the age of twenty seven, twenty eight, now twenty nine, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, I see him mostly as a squad player, an important one of that. And I'll be honest with you, when I, when I first saw the transfer, I, I wasn't particularly enthused. I, I hadn't watched him that closely. But I think it's pretty clear to see now why um, Alex Ferguson cherished him so much as a squad player. And we um, and can see it with us. And he's, he's an important player to have, and he's a great addition to the squad. But I don't think he's, he's that sort of quote-unquote starting eleven material that we as fans often like to discuss. Um, but of course, you know, with the with the natural injuries you anticipate over a season and um, the amount of games, especially when the schedule builds up, uh, he's he's fantastic to have around. And you know, I, I'd say it's been a it's certainly been a solid season, but um, it wasn't. I, I wouldn't have just I wouldn't describe it as breathtaking.
1: It, I'll say it like this: if it hadn't been for the cup win at Old Trafford, it would have been pretty much a lost season for Welbeck, in my opinion, for the most part. But that win alone is worth its weight in gold. It's why we have a trophy. It was such an important place for us to get a win. And just that alone, I, I think, makes this, this season somewhat successful. One more listener question for you, uh, Paul, and then we'll wrap up uh, with a final look ahead. Um, this one comes from Arcelona, uh, Tim Hardwick. And he asks, as a traditionalist, can we play four four two with Giroud and Theo?
3: Uh, well, hello, Tim. He's a good lad. Um, well, so the definitions of four-four-two and, you know, traditional four-four-two. Well, I mean, it could words, be with a diamond in it.
1: midfield. I think it's more the question of, can, can we play two-strike, two up front with Jerud and Theo?
3: So the answer to that is absolutely. How would can, you do it? Can and often should. Um, I think the main issue with is really the Theo question of does the manager trust Theo to press and to do the defensive work? And Theo's said all the right things. He just hasn't really had the minutes to show if he can translate it or the minutes he has had haven't shown that he can translate it, which is a shame because he's got a hell of a burst. He could be the best presser. Okay, he wouldn't do much when he caught the guy. He's not going to slide in with the tackle. He's not going to do what Alexis does, but he – could be run all over the place putting the pressure on them when we don't have the ball. Um, so, But from a, an attacking standpoint, I think Giroud and Walcott will be a great combination. Uh, I think Walcott's runs will help Giroud. And if you think of the RVP days, I mean, what's interesting with Walcott at the moment, when you look through his stats, is he's all goals and no assists. When, Which was not the back, case,
1: yeah. I mean, was he, had, he was a 10-assist
3: guy with, with RVP yeah. In there, yeah. And when his goals and assists contrib- contribution in, in Bale's final year, I mean, he blew him off the park in terms of G&A per 90, but a lot of that was assists to RVP and go. Uh, you think of the goal against Bayern, uh, the 2-0 at the Allianz Arena. I mean, was classic Theo of making that final short run squaring the ball to Giroud puts it in the back of the net that to me is the signature move for those two guys potentially uh, beyond Theo's own success running around the place but that leaves a lot of work for other people to do and I think that's the issue so I think from an attacking standpoint yes Uh, if Theo can up his pressing and defensive work and he said the right things Um, and what you know if he's staying around and if we're keeping him why couldn't he Um, he's never going to be tackling everybody on the field and and going into sliding tackles it's it's not something that he's wired to do but Theo's a learner and he's worked on his game and he's going to need that for whoever he plays for Uh, the only time he doesn't need that one is when we play him at center four. that's the beauty of playing him up there yeah. It solves that problem. The the real yeah. issue,
1: I mean, it, it, theoretically, it's interesting. I don't think it's a formation you can play in Europe, and I think the manager has tried to be consistent with one formation that he plays across all the competitions, so that there's cohesiveness and continuity. I don't see it happening. Um, so let's do this. Let's wrap up with the obvious question of what's next. Um, James, very simple. Who's leaving this summer? And what do we need to bring in to bridge what is still a fairly sizable gap at the top of the Premier League?
4: Okay, so who's leaving? Um, I would imagine Podolsky and Campbell will both be on their way out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, they pretty much—I mean, they pretty much already left the club as it is. Joel so, needs to get out while he can. <laughs> Indeed, he does. Indeed, he does. Um, I imagine Flamini's contract won't be renewed. Um, I, you know, following the the Facebook post that Chesney made after the cup final, it seems he's here to stay. Um, and I'm, I'm guessing now that the, a lot of the rumors are circulating around a goalkeeper maybe off, off the mark. Um, really? I'm, you don't think we'll go for a keeper? I, well, you know, again, I'd, I am who might to second-guess Arsenal, but I'd be a little surprised. I mean, he signed Osbina only last year. If Chesney's staying, I don't see him... Yeah, I certainly don't see him being pushed down to a number three choice keeper. He's clearly a player with a lot of quality, but um, it's the mental aspect of his game that's being put into question. And I So think, do you
1: see him staying? Well, I, I mean, forget think, what he says. He doesn't make, I don't know if you know this, but he doesn't make the transfer policy. Do you think the manager will sell him?
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate that, but I, I think there's a, a reason why he's come out with such a bold statement. I mean, you know, he, he doesn't need to open his mouth in that regard, and I think... Um, you know there was obviously a dig made at the kind of uh, comments that have been made from various media outlets and um, the kind of rumors that have circulated as a result so i you know I can only go off following that and I, if if he is to stay and i i, I know it 's kind of scared of the question but i my money would be on him staying purely because of that comment because previously I thought he was on his way out um, then I would take that as arson finally believing that. Shezzy is is able to mature as a player at Arsenal because I've, I I think most of us would agree that he's he's a a player a keeper that seems to be to have bags of potential and has the quality to be the number one keeper that we'd we'd like him to be and that would warrant a starting berth in at a squad at a team like Arsenal. Um, but sometimes his youth and exuberance and his cockiness have have got in the way of that and then shunted his. Um, uh, you know, taken away the limelight from his actual performances and have, and have actually hindered his performances somewhat. Um, but if he does stay, I think maybe that would be a that's a, a sign from the manager that that's what he believes um, might be changing in Chesney. Maybe this kick in this part of the season has uh, has done just that. Because I I do genuinely believe that if he did leave, especially because he clearly seems to love the club a lot. Um, he certainly, he certainly has that persona about him, and he's an easy player to relate to as a fan. But um, I imagine that if he was forced out of the club, that could definitely be what spurs him on and and gives him that sort of uh, metaphorical kick that I referred to um, to boost his career. But I hope, I hope that it'll be at Arsenal. Okay. I still have my doubts about Ospina, although I think statistically. Um, however much you want to read into that he has actually since coming to Arsenal been one of if not the best uh, following certain measurements keeper in the league, it certainly hasn't felt that way Um, and I'd be a little surprised if Arsenal decided to um, sell him having only signed him last summer so I just, as of right now although I was pretty convinced a new keeper would come in and it did seem to make a lot of sense I'm struggling to see how that happens, unless Sarsen just dem- shows an incredible amount of ruthlessness and um, is determined to bring in a Petr into the side.
1: Yeah, I mean, what about the rest of it, though? <laughs> um, so so that was great, but, I mean, is Theo off? Is Kazorla
4: off? Is In brief, Kazorla stays. Okay. Um, I know you disagree on that. Um, Theo, I'm up in the air, but I'm now inclined to think he will stay just based on the kind of um, talks that were given after the game and the way, you know, having started that final. Um, but again, that that's a tough one to to second-guess. Um, as for players that will come in, I do think with with Flamie surely on his way out, Arteta playing more of a coaching role, um, a member of the dressing room, I I would be surprised if we didn't sign a defensive midfielder or a player of that kind of ilk to aid Cochalan and you know just to, to add to the squad and perhaps in some games play alongside Cochalan, rotate a little bit with Francis throughout the course of the season um, and you know I, there's a chance that could be it but then again I think if a player of you know as Arsene referred to it as top top quality in the right wing forward position or a striker one of the two if a, if a really really good attack and I don't know who that would be um, becomes available that would Really uh, push the team on. I think Arsene would like to add that too, but I just don't know how viable that is. I think a lot of that's going to come down to whatever dominoes take place during the transfer period.
1: Yeah. And by the way, I just want to stress something because um, I don't want people to think that I like want Cazorla shot of the club or anything. I mean, I I think Cazorla will leave only because I think he wants to go back to Spain, and there were rumblings about that last summer. And I wonder if this was sort of a Cesk esque request from the manager that's kind of funny sesk-esque request um to stay for one more season and you know there is the possibility the manager may look at it and say you know what if Kazorla goes I can move Ramsey back into the middle where he wants to play in that deeper midfield position center midfield and that gives me more of a path to get Jack and Oxley chamberlain in the side you know there are a lot of players next season who are going to find it really really tough to play and are going to expect to play. And there are names like Jack Wilshire, if he stays, you know, Theo and Giroud, Danny Welbeck, Oxlade Chamberlain, Aaron Ramsey in central midfield where he wants to play. If Mikel Arteta is fit, Rosicky is resigned. I mean, there's a lot of players who are going to want playing time. And if we do go out and add some quality, it gets even tougher to see where that happens. Someone's got to go to make room there. Um, You know, especially if Nabry comes back into the first team. You know, Yaya Sanogo, of course, probably starts opening day. So, Paul, how about you? Some of the names, obviously, Walcott, uh, Arteta, Flamini, Chesney, Ospina. I mean, who's going? Someone's got to be going, you would think. Um, And what do we need to bring in to bridge? Again, we can pat ourselves on the back all we want. The gap was still pretty sizable. What do we need to bring in to bridge the gap?
3: If you told me two players were leaving from our core, so I'm not talking about Flamini, Podolski, blah, 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 mm-hmm. the people we expect to go, uh, and I had to work out who those two players were. Yeah, because I'd I think, say, by
1: the way, just to stop you, we all think, you know, the Joel Campbell's, Lucas Podolsky's, Matthew, uh, Matthew yeah. Flaminis, these guys are not in the plan, and as long as we can move them, we will move them.
3: And whether they go or stay, they actually don't actually impact. Right. They don't impact because they're, they're, they're not a part of the plan, right? Okay. So I, I, I agree with that,
1: um, that setup, right, the basis for discussion launching from there. So,
3: Yeah. If I had to pick two, I mean, my, my short list, uh, and I don't even include Arteta there at the moment because I kind of think he's peripheral right now. My short list would be Theo, and Cazorla.
1: James' and heart heart is breaking audibly.
3: Yeah, and so is mine. I mean, I love I Yeah, love me, me too, players. by the
1: way. I mean, none of us want him to go. James and I had a decent little Twitter discussion, just a brief one, you know, saying, you know, James doesn't think he'll go. My reasoning behind seeing him go, again, I explained. What about you? I mean, Paul, why why could you see Cazorla going if he goes? I mean, he was such an important part of the team this season.
3: I could see if, if there's some truth to him wanting to get back to Spain before the end of his career. Um, I don't see this as the year he would do it, except that I think they all look at it. He sees – I think he the, – the reasons he would go is because he has decided – he wants to go back sooner rather than later. And Ramsey, he just does not believe that Wenger won't at some stage next year look to move Ramsey, uh, who is our potential world-class midfielder, back into that central midfield role. And no matter how well he's playing, he suspects that Arsene's heart with, is with Ramsey and behind him Wilshire for that spot. And he knows it's this year or next year. And maybe this year is the time to take his cachet and spend it in Spain rather than a year. You know, he's never going to look better than he does right now. So he's possibly never going to be able to um, cash in his chips as effectively as he can right now. That's fair. And
1: and by the way, I mean, he's better than Ramsey right now. He just is. I don't care what anybody says. He's a better player than Ramsey the way he's playing right now. That doesn't mean he's a better player than Ramsey going forward. Um, But I think when you look at Ramsey, Wilshire, Oxley, Chamberlain, Welbeck, and Theo, you have five players who are all candidates for either a right wing or deep lying, you know, central midfield position. And there are five players, especially if Theo stays, that the manager is going to try to find time for. And if Santee has cemented the central midfield position, it makes it really complicated because then you have Ramsey, Wilshire, Walcott, Ox, and Welbeck all vying to basically play nominally on the right wing. And that's it. Um, now, obviously, injuries happen, so it, it doesn't usually play out that way. But, it, you know, it certainly solves a bit of a selection headache if he's not there. Um, I know, James, you want to add a little bit on Santi, so why don't you make that quick because, Paul, I still want to hear, uh, outgoings aside, what you think needs to come in. So just final thoughts on, on Cazorla staying or going, James?
4: Well, the thing is, I I understand where you're coming from in the sense that now perhaps there's a a reason. You know, with with the prospect of Ramsey potentially coming back into the middle at some stage next season, I don't think it would happen at the beginning. Because I think Azul is one of the first names on the team on the t- team sheet, um, along with Ramsey. Just you know, the two of them playing in the way that they have with Santi in the middle and and Aaron on the right to fit them both into the side. But over the course of a season, you know, there is. We've talked about this. There's no real set starting eleven. A player doesn't have to play every single game of a the season. Um, there's naturally going to be injuries, et cetera, that um, permit others to um, to get game time. And I think, you know, I think Arson is going to be a little more ruthless than he has in the past because we have the the strongest bargaining position now. I, you know, Santi's contract is up in 2017. He still has two years. I, the club is not in as desperate a need to to sell players and, and make a return from a transfer point of view. Um, I So I just, you know, even if Santi partially wants to go, which I think was mostly um, a co- coinciding with us playing barely at the beginning of the season, Atletico being, a, you know, a, a big improving you know side under Diego Simeone and Papers kind of putting two and two together and maybe he'd been a little... Unhappy because he hadn't necessarily felt the confidence in the side that he would now, in in the way of a Premier League title challenge. And there's also just such a big Spanish contingency at the club, um, with Alexi having come in, and you know, I, it, it's hard to really you know play the pop psychologist and and understand how how much a player feels homesick or, or how happy they seem at a club. But I mean, all the pieces seem there. I, I imagine his family is pretty settled in London. I I don't know how big a role that plays, and I, you know, especially as you know, the aforementioned sort of Spanish contingency there. I can't imagine him not um, having a great time. He he seems to come across a player that plays a big role in that dressing room. Um, With two years on his contract, I can't see him. Even if he did want to go, I can't see him kicking up enough of a fuss to force his way out of a club. I mean, the difference between him and Cesc, as much as Cesc may have at the time loved Arsenal, um, he. Just felt Arsenal awesome, wasn't a big enough club for him. I mean, he just didn't, unfortunately, see the club. Um, well, I,
1: I think that's oversimplifying it, too. I mean, he had he wanted to go back to what he considered his home because Orla's already played in Spain, you know, and made the move to, to the Premier League to be his big step forward. Fabregas was going home to make his step up to the club he, he was raised, you know.
4: Sure, but that was, I mean, I think out. he was always ultimately going to go back to Barcelona at some point, but I think. Some of that also came down to just the kind of performances we were putting in in the state of the club at the time. Well, he
1: was being surrounded with players like Danielson and, and Alexander Song, so. And,
3: and meanwhile, he was being wooed by Guardiola, you know. Who was Chadri, his hero. Pou- you know? that, th- those were no ordinary circumstances. You know Arguably what? the best uh, team in European history yeah, let's, wanted Cesc.
1: Let's not. Let's
3: yeah. not. <laughs>
1: so, um, <laughs> en- enough about that, Paul. Paul.
4: I just don't think Sansi will be on his way out. Okay, I, I can kind of see why some might think he would. Problem
1: solved. Okay. okay, case closed. Problem solved. Um, we we've solved that problem for the summer. So who's coming in, Paul? Who do we need? Not you. Don't have to give me the names specifically because obviously we can't know that. But what do we have to add to bridge the gap? What what if we add it will make us in your mind? if not title favorites, a team that should certainly be considering itself a title contender?
3: Um, We need to solve the goalkeeper problem okay. if we're going to win the title. Okay. Uh, I won't go into that. I think we yep, we know it. it. Either Arson has decided that Chesney is rehabilitatable. I think Chesney in good form and with his head screwed on right is good enough to win the league. Uh, we don't need anything in the defense. Uh, the real issue right now is midfield, and let me tell you who I don't think will come in and why, because I think it's instructive as to who should come in. Okay. We don't want to name names, but Schneiderlin I don't think can come in because he's a bit more box-to-boxy, passy than he is dm these days. Not that he doesn't have the ability, it's just that's not why he'd come. If he came here, he would be coming to express himself. Mm-hmm. And he would come to be a starter. So, in your list of players who would be on the star, uh, who would be a starter, Cochelan would the, be the DM. He'd see himself as the second central mid. And for all the reasons you've already talked about, we've already got Santi Ramsey. I think Schneiderlin makes things worse. Okay. And people say, well, you can rotate and he can move around and stuff. But we, most of our play, a Arson doesn't rotate very much. Basically, the 11th, the 11. I will disagree form, with especially.
1: you in this one respect. I think if a Schneiderlin came in, and by a Schneiderlin I mean someone of that ilk, ilk, it would be to be a choice ahead of Coughlin to try to press more, play with the ball more, and have a player who is sort of the holding midfielder who is more of a threat in possession and more elegant on the ball – um, and we we've already debated what we think of Coughlin on that point, so we're not going to do that. But I, I totally agree with you that he is a not is a non-starter. That he's going to bring someone new in to play alongside Coughlin, especially if Cazorla stays.
3: Yeah, and so I agree with your summary. If he brings in Schneiderlin or somebody of that ilk, it's to have him do the Coughlin role in a more progressive way, which hopefully Cochrane himself can do, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so that's... For all the people saying it could be Schneiderlin, that's my knock against it. I think he wants to be more expressive than the most defensive player, but maybe maybe we can rejig it. So Schneiderlin is the kind of player uh, played in a slightly more defensive role than maybe he wants to. That's what we need in midfield, Uh, We need something on the attacking side. We need Theo to stay. If Theo stays, I'll be good. Um, If he doesn't go, sorry, if he doesn't stay, we're going to need an attacking option who's flexible, uh, who can play alongside Giroud, who can cover uh, Alexis' side of things and who can bring goals because Giroud has his slow times of the season. Uh, Theo scores a lot of goals, may I remind everybody. Uh, Alexis scores a lot of goals so you lose if Giroud's in a slow period and we lost Alexis to injury and Theo's gone where the goal is going to come from so
1: yeah I mean to me the number one priority this summer to be a title contender a, a genuine title contender among the favorites as a title contender we need more goals. I, I really believe that. I think we need more attacking threat. You know, you can say what you want about um, Chelsea being a defensive team, but Chelsea scored more goals than we did, even as defensively as they played for basically half the season, and so did Manchester City. And if you go back, I mean, Manchester City finished second with the most goals, but the season before, 2013-2014, the top-scoring team won the Premier League. 2012-2013, the top-scoring team won the Premier League. 2011-2012, the top-scoring team won the Premier League. 2010-2011, the top-scoring team won the Premier League. Stop me when this gets boring. 2009-2010, the top-scoring team won the... Are, are you bored yet? Yes. No, I'm enjoying this. Okay. Um, In 08-09, it was the second-highest scoring. In 07-08, it was the highest scoring. And it goes on and on like that. But basically... Oh, 06 oh, seven. basically every single season for the last 10 years bar two of them the top scoring teams won the Premier League or the second top scoring team has won the Premier League and we finished 13 goals behind City and a couple behind Chelsea so I still think we need more goals I don't think Giroud can reliably play center forward and get us the 25 goals I think you need from a striker now Alexis can be that guy who scores the goals but I still I still think we need a dynamic player now Maybe it's not a center forward. Naveen was saying today we should play 4-3-3 with a false nine and play Ozil as a false nine with Alexis and Welbeck or Alexis and Theo on either side um, and create that sort of vacuum around the box that players like Ramsey and Kazorla can run into. And I don't mind that as, as an approach either, but I think we need to be more dynamic and need more goals. You saw against teams like Chelsea, who just shut Giroud down with no problem, um, we can be too static and too easy to keep out. I I would personally like to see a dynamic attacking player come in. I would like to see an upgrade at goalkeeper because I think, whatever I think of Chelsea's, uh, of Chelsea's, of um, Chesney's potential, I, I don't know that that relationship is fixable, full-on fixable, where he can be a title-winning keeper. And I'm I'm borderline believing that Coughlin can make that position his for a season. But if you think Arteta is basically done and Flamini is off, you still need another player there anyway unless you think Christian Bielek or, or Callum Chambers is somehow going to make that a position they can play regularly. Um, so ideally a dynamic goal score, maybe an upgrade on Coughlin even if we could. Um, but, you know, we can address that when we do our next podcast. We'll be uh, following the announcement of the dual signings of Vidal and Royce. So look for that one coming out soon. Um, we are running a crisp hour and a half right now, which for us I think is fantastic. So we should probably leave it there. Um, and I hope everybody enjoyed what was a phenomenal FA Cup victory, a season that ended on a high note and is looking forward to a great season next season and a summer full of trying to use the Women's World Cup, the Under-20 World Cup, the Copa America, and uh, midnight streams of Arsenal playing in faraway countries to get you through a long summer without Arsenal. I want to thank the two men who have made this podcast worth listening to. The first of them is James. You can find him on Twitter at GunnarFanatic49. Uh, James, as always, it is an absolute pleasure to talk football with you.
4: Guys, it's been a, it's been a great, great year, and I, I look forward to uh, the summer shenanigans and the start of next. Yeah, yeah, I,
1: I do as well. Well said. And again, uh, Paul can be found on Twitter at Poznan in my pants. Um, I've made the joke a million times. I won't do it this time. Paul, a pleasure as always.
3: Thank you very much. And
1: woohoo! And woohoo. And it's a great way to end the season, but the season isn't over until you've gone to iTunes Store somewhere and given this humble podcast uh, some rating. We would love a five star rating, but if you think we deserve a really terrible rating and you want to write funny things about me, that's fine too. I am Elliot Smith, by the way. You can block me on Twitter and should do so at Yankee Gunner. You can also follow this podcast now on Twitter at Arsenal V, as in Victory, Arsenal V Podcast. Um, do all of the above or none of the above, but please continue listening. Don't hold James and, Paul, accountable for my uh, horrible and otherwise unpalatable performances. We look forward to talking to you soon, and if something exciting happens this summer, I'm sure we will. Uh, barring that, we will certainly be back next season try to incorporate your feedback more into those p- podcasts as well. Cheers, enjoy the summer, and we'll talk to you soon. We've
2: got one question and one question only. What do we think of Tottenham? Shit! What do we think of shit? Tottenham! Thank you! That's all right.